we uh, look at the last chapter of uh, the book of Revelation. I'm sure you're all very happy uh, to get here after all the hard work that we've done. So let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray with confidence that uh, as we ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us, you will guide us. That we ask that you will soften our hearts and that uh, you will really implant in our mind forever in this life uh, that uh, the lessons that we've learned in the book of Revelation, especially as we come to the last chapter, uh, that you will really seal it in our minds and our hearts as we prepare to live for that glorious future ahead of us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, uh, I remember when I was uh, uh, working, I used to read a lot of business books, and I remember this uh, particular illustration quite well about climbing a ladder and how, uh, you know, life is like climbing a ladder. And uh, this illustration was, you know, you climb the ladder rung after rung, you know, it's quite tiring and you spend a lot of effort. And uh, you finally get to the top of the ladder and often you look around and you realize that it's the wrong ladder, right? The wrong destination you wanted to get to. Now, some of you may be familiar with this illustration. It comes from uh, the Steve Covey book about uh, seven habits of highly effective people. And he, I think it's rule number two or something about how you must always begin with the end in mind. Where, you know, where is your destination? Where is your objective? Where is your, your, your end point that you're trying to arrive to? And everything that you do must be to facilitate you getting to that end point. And he was sort of saying that, you know, uh, we can be very efficient, but we're not very effective because we're very efficient in doing things, but we're not effective in terms of getting to the end point. Well, I think today's uh, chapter, in chapter 21, the book of Revelation, is all about that end point. All about the, 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 where, where is the direction in which we're going to? Where are we going to? Where is the end? that we are seeking for ourselves, the destination. And it's not the end point that uh, we choose for ourselves, right? But it's the end point that God has chosen for us as His people, as Christians. And uh, that end point is where? The holy city, right? I mean, hopefully you all got that right. I mean, our end point, our destination for all of us here is that holy city. I hope that uh, when Jesus comes again, we are all there, isn't it? When we look around, all of us will be there. And last week, we saw the vision of this holy city and uh, it, was, uh, it was a very attractive and a wonderful place to be in. Uh, first of all, it was holy, right? It was holy and therefore God dwelt among His people. Okay? And there was no temple in that people because God was everywhere. He, he had a personal, intimate relationship with people. And it was a life free from sin. Right? There, was, uh, there was no tears, suffering, pain or death. And all of God's people is represented by the names of the twelve tribes, the, the walls and the twelve apostles at the foundation, all of God's people were living in this city. Now, uh, last week, uh, if you want to really compare what we're looking at this week, compare last week, last week was all about architecture, engineering, civil engineering, okay? So, you know, it's all about the dimensions of the wall, the names of the wall, the colors of the, 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 the wonderful pearls and the gold streets, right? But this week, we're not really looking at the architecture of the city anymore, we're looking at the horticulture, the landscaping, okay, the gardening, the landscape architecture. And that's why in chapter 22, verse 1 to, two, five, one to 2, it says, And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great, seat, uh, great street of the city. Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, okay, go back again, sorry. The bigger picture. So you'll see there that, um, uh, as it was drawn for us by our resident artist, uh, you can see that here is this river flowing through the city. Okay, 
and, uh, and it flows from this throne where God and the Lamb are sitting. Now, you'll notice a few things about this river that flows through the city. And uh, you need your Bibles because we're going to look at it very closely today. Right? We're going to notice that the water is not polluted, murky or longkang water, right? but it is clean water. It says that it's clear as crystal. I don't know what the ESV says, but my NIV says it is clear as crystal. And the water is described as the water of life. Water of life. But what does it mean, the water of life? Is it like Coca-Cola? Refreshing, right? Uh, or is it like Red Bull, gives you wings? That sort of life. Or is it like a, a, a chicken essence, which you know I'm giving my children now in the hopes of them doing really well in the exams? Right? Is, it, is that the sort of life-giving property of this water? No, I think the clue is that it flows from the throne of the Lamb and God, isn't it? And as we read the Bible, uh, from God and the Lamb, this water of life, it immediately tells us what sort of water this is, this river of life. Because as we saw last week, uh, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah spoke of these words. Okay, next slide. Okay, next one, sorry. Yep. So in Isaiah chapter 55, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy milk and, and uh, sorry, wine and milk without money and without cost. Uh, why spend money on what is not bread, on your labor, and what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear to me and come to me. Hear me so that your soul may live. Okay, so God is offering here food and water, which, which is like feeds your soul. Okay, which feeds your soul, which lends the idea of eternity, isn't it? It's eternal food. Food which truly satisfies. Uh, water that never makes you thirst. And again, uh, in John chapter 4, which we saw last week, right, Jesus himself says that he is the living water. Uh, when he's at the well, historically, when he was at the, in Samaria and he meets a Samaritan woman, uh, he asks the Samaritan wo- woman for water. And at the same time, he says to the Samaritan woman, he says, look, anyone or everyone who drinks this water from the well uh, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here we see, in this uh, wonderful picture of this holy city, a river which flows through, which is containing of living water, water which you drink, which leads to eternal life. Okay? So then, the picture then continues on. Next slide. Okay? Oh, sorry, I didn't put the slide there, but you got it in your mind, right? Okay, let me read from verse, three, uh, verse 2 to verse 3. Okay? So it says, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Okay, now, um, uh, sorry, uh, Alan, can you go back to number one? Okay, uh, now, if you notice there, it says there that there's a tree of life, but this tree of life is a, is a bit peculiar because you're not really sure how to understand it in the, in the symbolism of the picture because the tree uh, is on both sides of the river. So, uh, like our resident artist has drawn, uh, it could be one tree which happens to uh, span across the river. Or some people say it, it could be like the PIE or Orchard Road or, or the ECP where there are many, many trees of life which they are all on both sides of the boulevard sort of thing, right? So, it could mean many things. But again, 
this tree has a peculiar property, which is the tree of life. The tree of life. Now, as we, when we, when we remember last week we said when we read the book of Revelation, we always think back to what the other parts of the Bible say. And when we think of the tree of life, I think that as we read the Bible, we, we think of another tree, isn't it? There's only one other tree which uh, is, is, is sort of comes to our mind. And the tree of life is in, 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 the, in the book of uh, Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. And here, uh, this tree of life in Genesis chapter 3, I'm oh, sorry, you have to go back to the slide again, right? Uh, is described in this way. Uh, we know that the tree is in the Garden of Eden, and uh, as a man and woman are expelled out of the Garden of Eden, it says this, The Lord God said, The man has now become one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So this tree of life has a, has a property of where if you eat the fruit, uh, it is like the water of life. It confers on its uh, person who eats it or drinks it uh, eternal life. It, that's sort of the life that it's looking at. But this tree is really good because it's got 12 crops of fruit uh, yielding its fruit every month. Now, uh, what does that mean? What does that symbolize? Well, uh, for those of you who like durian, uh, which, which I don't actually, I only can eat one seed, then that's enough for me. Um, you'll know that durian season is only a certain time of year, isn't it? Uh, for those of you who may be a bit more anglophile and you like your strawberries and cream, right, you'll know that again, strawberries come at certain times of the year. You, you never have fruit uh, that comes you know, perpetually all year round uh, from the same place because fruits from that tree don't bear, you know, come all the time, do they? But here we have the tree of life, right? the tree of life, where there's fruit all year round. It's like the water, isn't it? The water is there perpetually. And the fruit is there all the time. So, you sort of think that, okay, the people living in this city, what is their diet? They're eating fruit, which gives eternal life. They're drinking water, which gives eternal life. It's a double confirm. They will get eternal life. So here we have a picture of this holy city and the people who live there live a life which is without end. But not only that, it says that the, the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, I, I presume we don't actually end up eating the leaves as well, okay, of this tree. Not all the trees will all be denuded, right? There was no fruit, no trees, no, no leaves, nothing else. But I think that what's really saying is the leaves of this tree represent the state of this holy city, where it is a place of restoration and healing and, and tranquility, where there's no pain, no tears, no mourning, no suffering. Same ideas, chapter 21. A picture of not just eternal life, but a full and abundant life. Now, as you look at this uh, picture of, uh, of this uh, garden, this garden city, not like uh, Singapore, but one that comes from heaven, you, you can't get away from the fact that it reminds us really like the, the original Garden of Eden. Uh, the Garden of Eden had a river. Uh, the Garden of Eden had the Tree of Life. And the Garden of Eden uh, was this big garden. And many people say that, uh, you know, we are meant to think this way because in verse 3, look at your Bibles, in verse 3 it says, no longer will there be any curse. See, this is the Garden of Eden before the curse. Because you remember uh, in the book of Genesis, after the curse, 
God barred man from ever returning to the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Uh, he put this angel there to stop people from going to the Garden of Eden. But here, in Revelation chapter 22, when Jesus comes again, he will allow people to come back to this Garden of Eden. And this is a wonderful place. But I think that there's more than just the Garden of Eden restored. But I think it's actually a better Garden of Eden than the original Garden of Eden. Now, you may disagree with me here, and I think that there are grounds in which, uh, you, you know, maybe I'm going too far. But if you notice, right, in the original Garden of Eden, uh, there was uh, the river, the garden, and the tree of life. But there was also another tree, right? So if you look up here on the slide, right? So now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put man, the man he had formed. The Lord God had made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a water was watering the garden that flowed from Eden and there it was separated into four headwaters. Now, you notice that in the original garden was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that's where all the problems started, right? Because Eve ate the fruit and gave it to Adam. But in this restored garden of Eden, uh, this in the holy city, there is no uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's as if there's something missing here. There's no negative element. There's no future possibility where maybe sometime in the future somebody is going to pick that fruit and start the whole process again. It's almost like a perfect Eden where there is no opportunity for sin ever again. But that's not what makes the holy city the holy city because in verse 3 it goes on to say that no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night and they will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, uh, just because God is on the throne doesn't mean that He's inaccessible. Because it says there that we will see His face. We will see His face. Now, the word that see His face is just another Hebrew way of saying that we will have a personal relationship with God. We will have a close and intimate relationship with God. It's the same way as I'm saying that, you know, uh, instead of uh, meeting you, through the, talking to you on the phone or SMSing you, let's meet face to face. Let's have a personal meeting. But the Bible, uh, as we have read uh, last week, uh, says that we cannot have a personal relationship with God in this life, in that same way, face to face. Because of sin, if we have, because of sin in our life, if we meet God face to face, we will be struck down in judgment. So Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, uh, shows Moses, one of the greatest prophets, wanting to meet God. And this is what happens, right, in in verse 18 of chapter 33. And then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. See, 
what happens in heaven is, is an extraordinary thing because today, even Moses, even Moses back then could not see God face to face because of the curse. But in verse 3, because there is no longer any curse for sin, because there is no more sin, all of us will be able to see God face to face. Right? Not face to face so that we can draw God. No, like, okay, take a photograph of God, draw God. We can see God face to face because we can know Him fully, truly, in a real way. And that's why uh, it says that we, we, we will have His mark, His name written on our forehead. Because it's another sign of showing that we belong to God. We are His people. Now, last week I said, that's what makes heaven heaven, isn't it? What makes heaven heaven is a relationship with God. In chapter 21, the picture of the holy city began by saying God dwelt among His people. Uh, as we end in chapter 22, this, the picture of this holy city, again it ends with the presence of God with us. Because the presence of God the relationship with God is what makes heaven, heaven. Now, a pastor was uh, giving this illustration. He's a Cantonese guy that I know. He said he watched a Chinese movie. And uh, in this Chinese movie, this guy goes to this big, huge wedding banquet in Hong Kong. You know, those really big wedding banquets. So, he sits down on the seat and he starts eating. But then after about three or four courses, he realizes that uh, he doesn't recognize anybody. Right? So he asked the person sitting next to him, and he says, uh, is this the, the, the wedding of Mr. and Mrs. Lee? Is this the Lee wedding? He says, no, this is the wrong wedding. This is the wrong, you are the wrong wedding. But then he realizes, you know, the food is really good, you know, he's having a good time. So he just sits there and he finishes the banquet. Now, you see, heaven is not going to be like that, right? Heaven is not where we just go there and we just enjoy all oh, the water, enjoy the fruit, right? enjoy all these, uh, you know, uh, amenities without relationship with God. See, heaven is, is, is heaven because we are there to have a relationship with God. We are there to have a close, intimate relationship with God. That's what makes it so good. And that's why it, it says that the whole of God's presence fills this holy city. Now, it doesn't say that there is no sun or no moon. It just says that we do not need the sun. We do not need the moon. We do not need any light because God's presence so fills this holy city that He brings light everywhere to it. Uh, I don't know how we will sleep then, right? Maybe when you go to the holy city, all of us get an eye shade or something, right? But, but the God's presence so fills this holy city that it fills it with light. So we will know God in, in every way, in, in, in every part of our life. Now, uh, this, as we come to verse 5, it ends this picture of this holy city, right? It's a wonderful life, it's an abundant life, it's a deep, intimate relationship with God. But why does he end this way, right? Why does he end with this wonderful picture of this holy city. Well, again, we must always remember context, 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 right? The context of the book. Now, who was uh, the audience of the book of Revelation? Well, uh, next slide. Remember, it was written to those seven churches. And remember that it was very difficult uh, in those days, as it is today, to be a Christian. It was very scary and difficult. Uh, because Satan was opposed to God's people. And as we read through the book of Revelation, Satan had many tools or henchmen or kakia to, to make life difficult for Christians. He had the first beast by using secular power, secular power political structures to put pressure on Christians to give up their faith. He had the second beast or the false prophet using the power of false religion to deceive Christians. Uh, he had the power of Babylon 
uh, the anti-God thinking and culture of today, uh, and, uh, and which again deceives Christians by seductive living. So, if it wasn't for the hounding and the harassment and the pressing of uh, the, you know, the first beast, then it would be the seduction and the sensual living or the pool or the allure or temptation of Babylon and uh, the false prophet. But I think that as we come to the very end of the book of Revelation, the question that is putting to the reader is, what is your final destination? What is your end point in your life? Right? Because I think it's no coincidence, but that the Bible ends, or sorry, the, the Bible as well as the book of Revelation ends with a contrast between the end point or the destination of God's people versus the end point destination of the enemies of God. Uh, if you look back at your Bible, for those of you who have your Bibles open with you, which you should, or maybe if you have your iPad, you can just do a bit of swiping, right? Okay? You look at chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and what is the end point of Satan, the beast, the false prophet in Babylon? So you look at chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, the end point is, they drink the cup of God's wrath. They are spending eternity in the lake of burning sulfur. Uh, they are trampled by God's wine press. See, that is the end of Satan, the beast, the false prophet Babylon, and all those who have the mark of the beast in chapter 17, 18, 19, 20. But in chapter 21 and 22, what is the end point and destination of God's people? Well, they are, they are in the holy city, right? Um, and, and, and I think as the reader, you're meant to ask yourself, where do you want to spend the rest of your life? Where is your end point? Where is your destination? Where is your destiny? Would you rather be swimming in the river of life? Right? Or would you rather be swimming in the lake of fire? Would you rather be enjoying life in this garden, this wonderful garden in the holy city? Or would you be uh, full of pain and suffering uh, in, uh, in, in judgment? Because that is where the destination is. That's where the final destination is. That's where the end point is, depending on which side you're on. And I think that is very serious, uh, this message. And that's why in verse 6 onwards, it keeps, uh, in a very jumbled and confused way in some ways, keep pressing home the point that you need to take this to heart. You need to pay attention to this because it's so serious. And because verse 6 to, verse, uh, to the end of the book seems a bit jumbled and confused, right? the ideas are so put some structure to it. And we must uh, take this to heart, first of all, because of the reliability and the certainty of what uh, we are reading in the book of Revelation. So you look up here on this slide. Right? I've sort of taken a few of the different verses and put them together. And in verse 6, the angel said to me, John, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Uh, and in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said, don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God. Okay, and then verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Now, all these points, which are sort of scattered, like, you know, you sprinkle your salt or something, right? On the, in the last 
few verses of the chapter, keep emphasizing that, look, you know, the words that we are reading, that we have been reading over the last few months, are reliable, they're trustworthy, and they are true, right? They're trustworthy, and they're true. And why are they trustworthy and they're true? Because it's not John's words. Right? John didn't take some medicine and uh, started hallucinating. Right? Uh, he didn't uh, get drunk or something. He didn't have a bad uh, nightmare after eating some pizza or something. Right? They're not even uh, visions of an angel. But where do they come from? They are the word of God. And they are the word of Jesus. And that's why they're reliable because God is reliable, Jesus is reliable, so His word is reliable. And that's why they're trustworthy and true. And that's why uh, Jesus says in verse 16, right? Sorry, verse 6, he says, uh, All these things must, must soon take place. The word here is not uh, these things might soon take place, or they may soon take place, or possibly take place. But the word here is must. And in fact, this word must here is often used in the rest of the Bible as a divine must. It's a divine necessity. When Jesus predicted that he was going to die and rise again in three days, uh, next slide, he used exactly the same word, right? You can go through, if you have a, some Bible software thing, you, you look for this word must. And Jesus keeps using it over and over again in the Gospels when he talks about his death and resurrection. So in Luke chapter 9 is one example in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's the same word must. See, because God is, is faithful, he is true, his word is trustworthy and is true, these things must soon take place. See, so what we're reading here is not uh, John's opinion, John's interpretation. John's dream, but it is God's word and they must soon take place. See, the beginning of faith, the beginning of action, always, to me, like, begins on how we look at the Bible. Because I remember when I, uh, I only became a Christian in my uh, early 20s, and I remember you know, I was reading the Bible with someone for a few weeks, and, and, and it didn't really make much difference to me, because I thought, well, this, uh, this is what just someone wrote. Like. I don't know why, why he wrote this, but he wrote this. But it was only after a while when I studied the Bible and read more about the Bible and I realized that, okay, this is uh, real, right? This is God's Word. Then when you realize that it's God's Word, you can't just take it or leave it. Because, you know, if someone says something to you, you can take it or leave it. But if it's God's Word, you can't take it or leave it. You must act on it. And that's what, that's what this passage is saying. It, it's true. You must, you must act on it. Okay, and that's why in verse 7 it says, Blessed is he who keeps the word, isn't it? Because it is true, it is something you need to take action on. And therefore, if it is trustworthy and true, and it's God's word, uh, in verse 18, next slide, we, we are not allowed to tamper or to amend or change uh, the word. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes the words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life in the holy city which are described in this book. Now, I heard a funny illustration by someone who used to say that they had a really old Bible. 
and the pages kept falling out. Uh, I don't know about you, I have a Bible like that myself, right? You know, if you have an old favorite Bible and you've kept it for many years, maybe only the older people can identify, right? And the page started falling out. So I had a, I know someone who said that, you know, they had a really old Bible and one day they found that Revelation chapter 2 had fallen out of their Bible, right? Because, you know, they couldn't find it anymore. So, does that mean that they will never get to heaven? They'll be excluded from the holy city because, you know, they have lost a page of uh, God's Word? Well, I don't know. When I was reading this, when I was a young Christian, I didn't quite understand. I thought, well, it's not really speaking to me. Maybe it's to people who copy the Bible. Or maybe it's to teachers who teach the Bible. If that's the case, you know, poor Andrew Ong, right? Because he's the only one who this passage applies to. But I want you to read very carefully what it says in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy in this book. He doesn't say, I warn everyone who teaches the words of prophecy in this book. So all of you hear the words of prophecy in this book. All of you are affected by what it says here. And again, the context is very important, isn't it? Because in the whole context of the book of Revelation, we, we have a tendency to hear and listen, but not properly not fully, not really take it to heart. So, remember again, the, the book of Revelation was written to those seven churches. And uh, one of the churches, an example, was, a, was Pergamum. Right, up here on the slide. Right? Pergamum. And um, it says this, So the angel of the church in Pergamum write, okay, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, here are some people who, according to Revelation chapter 22, they are adding to God's word. Or maybe they are subtracting from God's word. They are not taking and listening and hearing uh, the book of Revelation properly. They're not taking it to heart. Again, uh, below that, in uh, Revelation chapter 13, we, we live in a world where Satan has sent his, uh, his false prophet, the second beast, that comes out of the earth. And this second beast has two horns like a lamb. He looks like Jesus. He looks like the lamb, but he speaks the words of the dragon. And he does miracles, great miracles. So again, there's a great temptation for us as God's people to, to forget and add on to what we've read or subtract from what we've read because this second beast is out there um, leading us away from God's Word. And therefore, if we, if, we, if we don't listen to what God's Word is saying, we move away from it, then it makes sense that we will be outside this holy city because we have not taken it to heart. We will not have a share in the tree of life, and how sad that will be for us. So we must hold on to what we've read in Revelation chapter two, twenty-two. We, you know, sorry, the whole of Revelation, not just chapter 22, but the whole of Revelation, because it will be so sad if we've read it and understood it, but we've not lived it out, because we will have no share in the holy city. We will be instead in the lake of fire. But then, uh, again, the next point, okay, um, you see, uh, that there is also an encouragement to hold on to the very, very end. Now you'll notice in your Bibles, in Revelation chapter 22, uh, 
there is a parallel sort of uh, structured thing in verse 7 and verse 12. Um, you'll notice in your Bibles, and I've also highlighted it for you up here, right? It sort of says, Behold and then blessed. Okay, behold and then blessed. So it says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Uh, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Right? And in verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to everyone according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, again, in the case of the structure is the same, are those who wash their robes, and that they may have the right to the tree of life and go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So you see there's a parallel there, right? Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed if you do something. Now, I always used to think that uh, I'm coming soon used to mean, hey, if you're a non-Christian, you better become a Christian soon, no? because I'm coming soon. Okay? But again, I think uh, as I studied uh, Revelation again, I, I thought, okay, context doesn't seem to provided because the context is he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those seven churches that they're Christians already. So the, the coming soon is not become a Christian. The coming soon means look, hold on, keep holding on because the, the, I'm coming soon. You, know, the, you, you will not have to wait forever and ever. You will not have to struggle for that long. I'm coming. I'm coming. Don't, don't let go of me yet. And that's why it says there, blessed, uh, right in verse 12, my reward is coming Sorry, my reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Right? And that's why verse 7, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So what he's saying is, for those who keep the prophecy of the book, for those who keep holding on, Jesus is coming with his reward. The reward is not for people who do good works and get to heaven. That doesn't make sense, right? Because uh, in verse 14 it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Right? The way to get to heaven is to wash your robes. Remember washing your robes in the blood of the Lamb? Not by doing good works. So the reward comes for those who are willing to hold on to the very end. Right? Jesus is coming soon. You feel like giving up on, on being a Christian? Hold on, He's coming soon. You feel that the struggle is too hard, too painful, too difficult? Hold on, Jesus is coming and He's going to reward you for your perseverance. That's what He's saying here. And the warning comes in verse 15, right? Outside of the dogs, uh, those who practice magic arts, sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, sometimes people ask me, will your pet dog get to heaven? Right? Okay, here's your answer. No, they'll be outside, right? No, no. Okay, it doesn't work that way. The, the dogs here are not uh, your Alsatian or your Labrador or your, uh, I don't know, your Chihuahua or Cocos Spaniel or whatever. Right? The dogs here Olden days, people didn't really keep pet dogs, okay? Pet dogs, I mean, dogs are like uh, those wild, feral, uh, dirty dogs. You know, if you ever go to, I went on a mission trip to Cambodia. You know, when you're ever walking down the streets, there's just packs of dogs, right? And they're dirty, they're smelly, they never had a bath, okay? And this is the image that they have outside the city are the dogs. Uh, things which are impure, which are unholy. And actually, in the Old Testament, the phrase here, dogs, refers to uh, people who are actually 
God's people, but they are living an impure or immoral life. So in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, right, it says, No Israelite man or woman is to become a, a shrine prostitute. Uh, okay? In those days, there are these uh, prostitutes who serve in the temple. And you must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute. And the word here for male prostitute, literally, is if you look at your footnote of your Bible, for those of you who have your NIV, there's a footnote there. It says, that the earnings of a dog into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. So here, the word dog here is, is to refer to someone who is actually, a, a, at that time, a Jewish person, someone who is in the covenant of God, who is God's person who is practicing something which is very immoral or, or very impure. Right, so the word dog here is, is used for someone who is a Christian, but he's living a very unchristian life, a very immoral life. And that's why in uh, the Old Testament as well, in Malachi, you'll see that God uses a similar list to condemn those Jews who are living uh, in immoral ways. So God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, so I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against the sorcerers. Uh, sorcerers. That's very similar to the magic arts, isn't it? Revelation chapter 20. Right? Remember, he, he says those who are practicing magic arts will be outside the city. Adulterers. Adulterers are the sexually immoral. The perjurers. You know what perjury is? You go to court and you, you lie uh, so that someone will uh, be sentenced wrongly. Okay? So a perjurer against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord God Almighty. Now this is a great warning for us, isn't it? Because it says that just because outwardly you are a Christian, doesn't mean that you will get to the holy city. Uh, if you are rebelliously, persistently, willfully, unrepentantly engaging in sin, then... God says that you're just a counterfeit Christian. You're not a true person. You do not have the mark or the name of God, but you actually belong outside the city. And how sad that would be, isn't it? That you hear the word of God, you listen, you, you feed on it, but yet you have not taken it to heart. So, it's really important for us to examine ourselves and say, uh, look in the mirror and say, do I look like a dog? Right? Uh, not my pet dog, but you, you live in a really impure way, willfully and persistently in an impure way. Are you, you know, sexually immoral? Are you a murderer in your heart? Are you idolater? Do you worship things in this world? Do you love lies and falsehood? Because then your end point, your destiny, your, your, your destination will not be the holy city. Now, last of all, comes down to the last few verses, right? And it says there in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, I always misunderstood verse 17. I always thought it was, uh, it was, it was basically um, an invitation to, to come to the holy city. But look carefully at verse 17, who, who actually issues the invitation to come and drink the living water? Uh, who is it? It is the Spirit and the Bride. Uh, it says that the one who hears 
says, come. So what it's actually saying is, it is not God inviting us to come to the Holy City, it is the Holy Spirit speaking together with the church, and speaking together with us who hear Revelation, to go to the world to say, come, come, three times it says come, come to the free gift of the water of life. See, our role as Christians is not to, uh, to keep the living water of Jesus and to bottle it up and just take a few sips of it ourselves, right? But it's actually to invite people to come to the living water. That's what it says. The Spirit, the Bride, and let him who hears. We are the ones who go out there and share the living water of people. We, we ask the world to come to the living water, the free gift of water. So personally, yourselves and me, and corporately as a church, we must be bringing water to that living people and we must be building up people uh, in that, drinking that living water. But the problem is, I, I think uh, we all live in a comfort zone. I, I mean, I like comfort. Who doesn't like comfort, right? Uh, we all live in a comfort zone and we all are very happy with our routine, right? Bringing the living water to people means taking the effort to learn, to meet new friends, to engage with people, to, to, to take a risk. Because we're very happy with the friends we have. Right? Why do I want to make new friends and you know, bring the living water to people? So let me give you this illustration. Now, I know this uh, Singaporean pastor who is ministering in some western country out, out there. And he was telling me how uh, he was doing a really good ministry with these overseas students. And what they'll do is every Sunday after church, his wife would cook all this Chinese food. Because, you know, in some of these places, it's very hard for them to get Chinese food. So she would cook all this Chinese food. And all these international students will come to the church and there will be a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with them. But unfortunately, some of the locals, uh, they didn't like the Chinese food. So they would come to the pastor and the wife and complain and say, what is that garbage you're cooking, right? Don't cook it anymore. Right? It's very smelly. We don't, we don't like that smell here. And, 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 and as a result, you know, it's very difficult to do the ministry. So rather than seeing the importance of bringing people and giving them the living water, right, uh, these people are complaining about the smell of the cooking. Uh, another pastor told me this. Uh, these are all true stories. Okay, I'm not making this up. Another uh, pastor was telling me about how he had a treasurer in his church. Uh, and uh, the treasurer came to complain to him and said, Can you start having so many newcomers in the church? Because they're using up too much toilet paper. <laughs> right, sorry. No, I'm not making that. Right? These are true stories. Okay? He, he, this is what the, the, the treasurer actually said to him. Like, there are too many newcomers and they're using up too much toilet paper. But instead of saying that, okay, the real role, if you look here in verse 17, is to invite the world to come to this living water. How different it is for a friend of mine who was a student in Australia who went to a church and the reason why he stayed in that church and became a Christian was because there was an old Australian couple who made it a point every lunchtime on a Sunday they would invite a new person to, uh, at the church to come to their house for, for lunch. And uh, that's what they did. And they were, you know, they were this old Australian couple. They didn't have to do that. They probably could go home and watch TV or something. But every Sunday they would invite a new couple to the church uh, to lunch, a new, new visitors. For lunch, and as a result, because he was an overseas student, he felt you know ministered to. He stayed and became a Christian. And I think that uh, if you look at verse seventeen, that's what it's saying. We hear the message of Revelation. We know uh, what's going to happen in the future. We know that there's this free gift of living water. 
So we, we are here to offer it to people. We're here to say, come and drink this living water. So last of all, it ends by verse 20, isn't it? It says, He who testifies these things says, I am coming soon. All right? He said that already in verse 7 and verse 12. But at verse 20, he repeats again, I'm coming soon. Right? Keep holding on to the word. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, the, this word here, come, Lord Jesus, uh, is literally uh, the same meaning as the Aramaic word Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus. Right? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20 uh, they actually translated uh, Maranatha, but this, is a, this actually just uses the, the original Greek language. But it means Maranatha, come Lord Jesus means Maranatha, if you never knew what Maranatha meant before. But the thing is, can we actually say Amen to that? Come Lord Jesus, Amen. Because you can only say Amen if you are washed by the blood of the Lamb, if you are holding on to the words of God and not tampering with it, and you're persevering, and you're not an impure dog, isn't it? Because then you can pray Amen to Maranatha. Because if, if you're not holding on to the Word, if you're not washed by the blood of Jesus, if you're not persevering, if you're not uh, telling to people, come to the living water, if you say Amen to Maranatha, then you're just calling judgment on yourself. So I, I really hope that you will take the book of Revelation seriously. And that we, you know, you can say with confidence, Amen, Maranatha. Because you're looking forward to Jesus coming and to go to that holy city. Because you're ready. Right? You're holding on to Jesus. You, you, you're not turned to this world. But if you have not accepted Jesus, have not, have not accepted Jesus, then I'd like to really uh, challenge you with verse 17, of chapter 22. It's free living water. It's uh, water without cost, right? It's much cheaper than Evian and Perrier. Okay, it is water without cost. It is true eternal living water. And, uh, you know, God's word is trustworthy and true. It is, it is something that must soon take place. And I really hope that you will take the offer of this living water seriously. See, in conclusion, what is your destination? What is your end? Uh, for many Singaporeans, it's the five C's, right? So I don't know whether it's still five C's or seven or three or whatever. But, but, you know, whether it's your car, whether it's cash, whether it's condominium, whether it's credit cards or country club, it, it, is, it is the wrong ladder. It is the wrong ladder because at the end of the day, it's a miserable end, isn't it? Because when you actually get to the end of that ladder, you'll find that it ends up in the lake of fire. And that's a terrible destination. So which, which is your destination? What ladder are you climbing? Where, where is the end point of your life? Well, I hope that for each and every one of us, our end point is that holy city. That place where God dwells with us. Where we will truly know Him, where there is no effect of sin. Where we will have an abundant life, an eternal life. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that each and every one of us here will make it to the holy city. We thank you that you've given it without, without cost, without fee that it is a free gift to us. And we pray that each and every one here will resist the temptations of this world, resist the pressures of this world, and that we will hold on to your word, neither adding to it, neither taking away from it, but just taking all of it to heart and holding on till Jesus comes again. And uh, truly we pray also for ourselves that we will, we will be used by you and the Holy Spirit 
to say to the world, come, come to this living water. Uh, come all you who, who are thirsty, whoever wishes, uh, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.